0: All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is June eleventh, the year of our Lord, two thousand twenty. We have shaved the show down to where we're somehow going to try and get it in in about fifty minutes, forty-five minutes, maybe. Every finger we have crossed 40 minutes or less tonight, which is where we've been, not by design. We've just kind of been going 40 minutes every time, except for the random hour show, but that was pre-recorded the other day. So we've got a lot to get to tonight. The blue chip ratio is out. You guys have gone crazy over this all day, even though you don't realize it, but our own Bud Elliott basically eliminated like most teams in college football from a college football national championship this year. But that's okay. If you, if you don't mind, I don't mind. There's a lot to talk about. We are going to discuss that. We're going to continue our most important in college football 2020 discussion, and we're going to go up to State College PA for that. I'm also going to answer one of your questions that I really thought needed to be answered on air instead of just on the Late Kick Extra podcast. It has to do with LSU but it doesn't just have to do with LSU because there are a number of teams who have recently transitioned offensively that this applies to. It really applies to LSU. So we're going to get to all that. I've got a couple of other Q and A's to get to as well. Those of you who already listened to this week's late kick extra podcast. And if you have it, you can go there and you can listen to it anytime you want to. That's the beauty of a podcast. Actually two parts this week. I went so long that I got, you can still see a little redness here. I got slapped on the wrist because I think I went like an hour and a half. No bueno. So we're going to cut it up into two parts, and the other part's being released tomorrow. So those of you who cry that you want more, 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 this week at least, you're getting more, more, more. That's the price you pay when I answer every question that you send me. More details on that later. But I really wanted to start tonight with the aforementioned blue chip ratio. What is this? Well, I don't think it's too hard to figure out, but let's dive in. So our bud Elliot releases his blue chip ratio today. I don't think you need to necessarily have come from NASA to 24-7 Sports to understand how it works, but yet the beauty is in the simplicity. The method and purpose here is basically, we're trying to marry logic and data, and you wanna generate essentially a list of title contenders. You wanna get a list together and with about a 98 plus percent certainty, the national champion from this year is coming from this list. Now, please don't be that guy or girl. You know who you are. Most of you aren't that guy or girl, but every one of you has one of those guys or girls in your life. The one that tries to pick apart, the one that says, I remember one time in 1838, this happened. I remember one time in 1945, this happened. Well, that's why I said 98% and not 100%. This is the rule, the overwhelming rule. This isn't science, though. So, what is the blue chip ratio? The blue chip ratio is essentially look at the past four recruiting cycles at any given point in time. So right now we're sitting here in 2020, we're taking the last four recruiting cycles and we are measuring how many four and five star kids you signed versus kids rated three stars or less. And the programs that are 50% or more, in other words, you have brought in more four and five star talent, you have signed more four and five star kids than you have three star kids or less, That means you are plus 50, as you can see the numbers here if you're watching on YouTube, on the blue chip ratio, and historically, you need to be in this group if you're going to win a national championship. Now, as we often do pretty much every week on this show, we go quickly down the list, only one bullet point here, of what I didn't say. I didn't say that if you're plus 50%, it guarantees you any kind of championship. It doesn't even guarantee that those teams, all of them that Colin just showed you on that list, it doesn't guarantee you that all those teams are gonna go 500 or better this year. Think about the other side of that coin though. What it does do is it tells us if you're not on that list, chances are very, very great that you're not going to be in that national championship conversation. So just cause you're on the list doesn't mean anything, but if you're not on the list, it probably means a little bit more. So the breakdown this year, and I'm gonna give you some historical context in just a second. There are six teams from the Southeastern Conference, this is no surprise, on that list. There are three from the Big 10, there are two from the Big 12, there are two from the Pac-12, and one from the ACC, and it occurs to me a lot of you listen in podcasts, so let me just quickly read the list. The list, there are 15 teams on here, is Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Texas, LSU, Oklahoma, Clemson and Florida, Michigan, yep, Auburn, yep, Penn State, talking about them later, yep, Notre Dame, Washington, USC, and new to the party apparently this year, Texas A&M. Now, as you can see, 15 teams this year. What was the average just a few years back? 2014 to 2018. Everyone says there's less and less parity in the sport these days, Well, there are 15 teams on this list right now. There were 12 on average on this list over the five-year span between 2014 and 2018. What does that mean? Does it mean we have a dispersing of talent? Does it mean we have more people arriving to the big boy table? Maybe. I actually encourage you to go read the article. It's on the front page of 247sports.com right now. After the show, of course. Let's be disciplined about this. Because there are some theories thrown around in there by Bud. I just want to talk about the inexplicable nature of the ACC. The ACC is bad, bad football outside of Clemson, which for our purposes tonight is basically an independent. The fact that Florida State University and the University of Miami, and if you are one of a fan base, one of a member of these fan bases, you need to be nodding your head in agreement. The fact that they're not on this list is abhorrent it is so inexplicable think about where you're parked and then think about where some of the programs on this list are parked geographically they gotta travel to get talent washington the university of washington is on this list and florida state and miami aren't horrible inexplicable terrible that's not clemson's fault that's why i'm removing them from the conversation but the fact that the atlantic coast conference with schools parked in from the Tidewater of Virginia, you got a couple there, all the way down to obviously the Carolinas, and then the state of Florida, and you got one team that makes the blue chip ratio. You got one team that over the past four years has recruited more four and five star talent than three star or less talent, amazing. Uh, but FSU gone, Miami gone, a as Bud pointed out, new to the party here. Now who's next is the follow-up question that I think is natural everyone asks, Who's close to being in this? I should note, since I was so disparaging in my remarks there, FSU and Miami are barely out of this. They're sitting at like 49%, just north of 49%. So by fractions of an inch, they're out. But the fact that they're even flirting with that number, the fact that they're not 60% or higher, is inexplicable. So let's not let's not um, let's not argue over details, very small details. But who's next? Well, it looks to me. For all the world, like this time next year, the University of Tennessee will be on this list and the University of Oregon will be on this list. Reason being, both of them had very lackluster recruiting classes in 2017. Both of them look to have very strong recruiting classes coming in 2021. This time next year, the 2017 class will be off of that four-year rolling aggregate and the 2021 class will have been added on. Now, if we just for the sake of argument, keep all these teams on there. Let's just say we add Oregon and we add uh, maybe one of FSU and Miami back and we add Tennessee. Who after that? It's a pretty healthy list, to be honest with you. But who after that? I don't know. And who could upset this was the follow-up question number two. That's basically asking, How do you see a year where a team not on this list wins a national championship? Well, I only see one of two ways. One way is a program like Tennessee or like Oregon or Miami, Florida State, a program hovering in the 40s, 45 or north, but not quite over the 50 percentile mark, lands a transcendent quarterback, maybe out of JUCO, maybe in the transfer market, and just all of a sudden it's one of those lightning in a bottle deals. That would be a natural way, a fair way for lack of a better term. I don't think I need a better term when I tell you what option B is. Option B is some of you get your way and an undeserving G5, undeserving because of their strength of schedule, an undeserving G5 backs their way in and basically everyone else is injured and you have G5 madness and you have an unnatural national champion. I've had this argument. I'll be happy to have this argument again, just not on this particular show. Those are the only two ways that I see that happening. Now, there's a third point that I want to make here that I'm going to get into a lot more on a future show. There's a thought out there. Let me back up. There has been a thought that the window of the teams capable of winning a national championship in any given year, it's closed, and that table has closed, and they've removed chairs from it. Well, you you either believe that or you believe looking at this, maybe we've added a few more. Now, your counter to that could be, okay, yeah, there are more teams that are above 50%, but let's be real. Is Washington or Notre Dame or USC really sitting at the same table or even capable of sitting at the same table in a playoff situation as Alabama or Clemson or LSU last year, for example? No, my answer is no, but in any given year, I can't possibly know what's going to happen. But I digress. That's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is for everyone who has yelled at me, there's no parody. There's no parody whatsoever. There are like four or five teams that could win every year and that's it. Those same people, and I don't necessarily buy that. Every year I don't buy that. Those same people are yelling at me. And if you don't think it's bad now, wait till this name, image, and likeness legislation passes And all these programs with limitless resources are going to be able to not only sign kids to scholarships, but also they're going to be able to offer them endorsement deals and cars and sacks of cash from boosters and all this. And you guys, some of you, from what I can tell, tend to think that's going to ruin the sport and it's going to cut off outside of about four to six programs, anyone from being capable of winning a national championship. I think that's dead wrong. I actually think it's going to expand the field and it's going to level the overall pool of elite talent out amongst more programs. This sounds very counterintuitive because you ask yourself, wait a second, Ohio State with limitless resources, Ohio State, Ryan Day, able to walk into a living room and do what used to be illegal now legally. Nick Saban owns Mercedes dealerships in a world where he can walk into someone's living room and offer a catalog to them and say, pick out which one you want. How is anyone ever going to compete? There are ways. That system's not just going to benefit the big boys. Make no mistake, it's going to benefit Bama. It's going to benefit a and and m probably positioned very well to benefit in the near future in college football. Ohio State, all the big boys, oh, it's going to benefit them. But there's also a path where right now, system we're currently in, Arizona State and Arkansas have no shot. There is a path in the future. I'm going to spell it out for you in the not too this future There's a path for the Arizona states and the Arkansas of the world to see themselves more capable of competing. What if, I to, what if I told you? What if I told you that? Well, I am telling you that. And then I'm going to cliffhang you because we got to move on. I don't have it in tonight's rundown our most important people in college football. We um, started it the other night. I got so many people to get to. I don't think that we have enough days between now and the scheduled start of college football season to go down the list of all the folks that I wanna talk about. The other night, we started it, and tonight I'm gonna continue. I asked this on the Penn State message board over on Lions 24-7 today. I kinda put it out there, it wasn't a question, but I wanna ask you, not Penn State fans, not diehard Big Ten fans, but just college football fans in general. How many of you, if we raised our hands right now collectively, how many of you know who Kirk Soraka is? Some of you are raising your hand and good for you some of you have heard the name, but you couldn't really nail down who he is. And then a lot of you are just saying, huh? Does he work at No, Well, he may. I don't know what he's done in his free time, but he is now the offensive coordinator at Penn State. Last year, he was the offensive coordinator at Minnesota. Before that, he was at Western Michigan, both stops with P.J. Fleck. He got on a bad train at Rutgers a few years back and set his career back a little bit, or I think you probably would already know his name coast to coast. So the reason twofold that I don't think people know this guy's name. Part one is because you don't probably follow Western Michigan and Minnesota all that closely. Part two, with so much that's gone on in the off season, I just flat out don't get the sense that a lot of people have followed the movements of big-time coordinators to major programs like you normally would. You've been paying attention to what COVID-19's doing. You've been paying attention to all sorts of news broadcasts, and understandably, I'm not criticizing you, you probably have not had at the forefront of your priority list of the to-do section in your mind, let me find out what Penn State's going to do offensively this year. Well, say no more, because we're going to tell you. Kirk Soraka is one of the most important people in college football this year. He is, as I said, the new offensive coordinator at Penn State. All right. Now, first, I want to remind you, I was on radio with Mark Ryan on ESPN Upstate uh, in the Carolinas today, and we were talking about this. I sort of reiterated that I believe the most likely candidate to not win their conference but still make the playoff this year is Penn State. Normally, the answer is someone from the SEC. It's either the loser of the regular season tilt between Alabama and LSU. A lot of people are going to say this year, Georgia or Alabama, Georgia or Florida, maybe. I don't think it's any of those. I think the most likely, the odds-on favorite to be able to not win their conference, but make the playoff, Penn State. Now, I laid out a few reasons why the other day. Quickly, it helps. It doesn't hurt. It helps that they're in Ohio State's division, because if you're going to lose a game, that's the one you want to lose. They play Ohio State and Happy Valley. And if you lose there, you're probably not getting blown out. If you lose, it's probably going to be close. Now, your plan A is to win. And if that happens, then we're in a different discussion. But even if you drop that game and you drop it close, keep in mind where they are on the schedule. They're going to have a good enough strength of schedule, okay? Outside of the Ohio State game, they go to Virginia Tech this year. They go to Michigan this year. They go to Nebraska this year. I think they play Iowa. They're going to have good enough. They're going to have a strong enough strength of schedule. But here's the kicker. They don't play Ohio State second to last week or last week of the season. They play them in uh, week eight. And after that, they're going to be favored every game. So they're going to have time if they drop that game to drop down to whatever they would be eighth, ninth, 10th in the playoff committee rankings. And then they're going to do that very quiet, climb back up, or at least they're going to be in position to do that towards the end of the year to where they don't need to do anything. They just need a lot of other folks ahead of them and inevitably they will to drop games. So this is hypothetically the way that I see Penn State season playing out. That's why I suggested that. But second reason, is Kirk Soraka and what he could do here. What have we talked about on this show? What have you talked about? If you're a Penn State fan, what do you guys talk about amongst yourselves? How in the world do we get our offense to look like Ohio State's did last year or Clemson's in any given year? Look at what Alabama's done. All these folks that are playing for a championship every year, it seems. How do we get our offense to look like that? Everyone wants to know, as do I, what are the ingredients that we need in the kitchen here at Penn State to flip the switch? So we ask ourselves first and foremost, is the addition of what looks to be a very elite mind as offensive coordinator, is that enough? Sean Clifford's there. He's had like 15 offensive coordinators during his time at Penn State, so hey, what's one more? But last year, you know, he showed flashes. He looks like a guy that if he's married with the right offensive coordinator, could do some things. I know they've got an established tight end and a lot of young receivers, but the bottom line is, if Soraka is the guy, A handful, two or three of those young receivers are going to emerge by default. They've got a good offensive line. I think they bring like four of them back. So they've got pieces in place. they got experience at quarterback. And I think that makes up for a lot of what you lost in spring, but also they don't have a daunting front half of the schedule. They don't play two or three top 10 teams in September. They're not scheduled to do that. So what I'm telling you is, unlike some programs out there, they may be in the fortuitous situation to ease in and gel and be what in week six they couldn't have been in week two, for example. But when I look at the difference between what Soraka has to deal with this year, what excites me personally, and looking at what he can deal with this year with Sean Clifford that he didn't necessarily have in Tanner Morgan and those boys at Minnesota last year, and they did good things last year, kid couldn't run to save his life literally to save his life. If life was on the line, you still weren't getting any mobility out of the quarterback position at Minnesota last year. You're going to get it here. I don't know how much they're going to choose to use it. It angered me to no end last year to watch Jimbo Fisher completely ignore the concept of Kellen Mond using his legs as a functioning part of his game plan offensively and their overall offense. So I don't know if Kurt Srock is going to ignore the idea that hey, he's got a quarterback, he's got some legs, got some wheels. But if he doesn't, And I think he'd, you know, I've read quotes from him that says, I'd be dumb not to do this. So if he's just telling me the truth on the surface, it excites me a lot. But see, what else excites me is if I get from them the steady progression that I think I'm going to get, now I want you to consider what it means, not just in 2020, but 21, 22, 23, all of a sudden, just like I talk about with Michigan all the time, all of a sudden, if I'm a four-star receiver in Deerfield Beach, Florida, and every year, I look at the same programs because a lot of kids come from that area. So every year, all those receivers down there, they pluck them off trees every season. And they're looking at Alabama, and they're looking at Clemson, and they're looking at Ohio State more, in a lot of cases, more so than they're looking at the in-state programs. Florida's done better. All of a sudden, you start adding Penn State to that list. Because all of a sudden, there's an offense I can go to up there where... I can get my playing time. I can get my production, brand name, really cool place to play, probably underrated, perceptionally, nationally, amongst recruits right now. And then comes the kicker. I don't think you have the quarterback of your future on your roster right now. And you may have trained your mind to think, okay, well, if you know Sean Clifford's back next year, unless he goes crazy this year and goes to the draft, Clifford's back next year. But then you know we're looking at a bunch of guys that are mm, maybe, maybe, maybe. And if one of those guys doesn't pan out, then... Who are we recruiting that could be the quarterback of the future? That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is the same way Georgia just thought about it. You get an offensive product that's viable. And if you do get that this year, which I think you will, all of a sudden you may have one eye on high school come this offseason. The other eye is going to be nationally. And you're looking at which quarterback out there has what it takes that's not in the best position that wants to transfer. That's where big-time recruiting in the world of quarterbacks is shifting to. You don't have to take one out of high school. It's nice if you get one. You don't have to take him out of high school the old-fashioned way. Find a kid that's two years in. Find a kid that's got the intangibles, that's got the tools. He's proven that he can handle college life. He's proven he can handle the college playbook, digesting the entire college experience. But he's not in the best of positions. He's in a, a dead-end pos- a situation with his current program, and he wants to go elsewhere. Penn State, were you on that list three years ago? Not necessarily. Could you be on that list this time next year? Could Penn State all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you just wake up one morning, check your phone, and see a headline that fill-in-the-blank elite quarterback has transferred to Penn State? Right now, seems crazy. You put up big numbers this year offensively, all of a sudden, I don't think it sounds so crazy. So that, among many other reasons, is why we've got our eye on Kirk Soraka this year.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Elsewhere, we've got our eye in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We always do. People call us LSU homers and, hey, we kind of are. We play favorites sometimes here. I have no problem admitting the biases that we have on this channel. I'm in a position where I can do that. So last year, we were on the LSU train early and often. They proved us right. Uh, They treated us very well, and so people called us LSU homers, and yeah, I was pulling for them. And hey, if I pick them this year, guess who I'll be pulling for again this year? I have no problem admitting that. But I can also fairly critique them when they need to, So when they need critiquing. So I'm looking in the Twitter inbox today, and Jeb sends me this. It's a little bit longer, but I'm just going to read the key parts here. Jeb asked me, how would you handle the running back position at LSU for 2020? With Clyde Edwards-Alaragon, LSU has three viable starters. I think running backs' ability to block is an important aspect of what LSU's offense is now. Do you see running back by committee, a two-back system, or the emergence of a true RB1 feature back, in other words, at LSU? Here's been the overall refrain from LSU. The glass-half-full crowd, of which I'm a part of, says that the pieces may be gone from last year, but the culture is in place and the system is in place. I'm not of the belief that because Joe Brady left and Joe Burrow got drafted, that all of a sudden you're going to have Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble in the backfield and you're going back to square one. I don't think that's what LSU's offense is gonna be. But as I say that, let's remember what the key was last year for LSU. And I'm gonna mention another key in just a second, but talent, more so than anything else, is how you win in major college football. That's not breaking news. LSU had a lot of talent last year. Some other teams had a lot of talent too. Uh, You know what else LSU had? They had versatility, a lot of it. This is what made defensive coordinators pull their hair out at night. It wasn't just the talent, it was the versatility. Clyde Edwards Hilaire, a guy you just mentioned, is a perfect case study on what made them so lethal last year. I'm gonna tell you why. On third and one, he's the guy you wanted on the field. Second and 12, he's the guy you wanted on the field. Third and seven, he's the guy you wanted on the field. Why? Because he can pick up yards between the tackles. He can hit the perimeter. He can pick up blitzes. He's very good in pass protection. And he was excellent. Better hands than some receivers out of the backfield. There was nothing he couldn't do. They were also that way at some other positions, most notably the tight end position, for example. LSU last year, what am I telling you? They didn't have to sub. They were very versatile, they were multiple. And so you had guys that could run power for you, and then 15 seconds later, you're going four wide. And as a defensive coordinator, you're looking at saying, aren't they supposed to have to substitute? Well, yeah. Typically, you'd see substitutions there because typically the guys capable of doing one thing aren't always capable of doing the other thing. You can be a bowling ball or a fighter jet. You're not supposed to be able to do both. They could be both last year. Versatility with the talent was key for them, which brings me to your question. Do I see a running back by committee approach? I hope not because that ain't going to work for LSU. What LSU wants to be offensively, it's not an offense that is tailored to let's do running back by committee. And I think that maybe some people are envisioning that this year. And I'm not interested in hearing that for them. They need a feature back. Believe me, they need a feature back. I hear running back by committee with LSU. And what I hear is stall drives. I hear one possession losses. That's what I hear. If you tell me they're going running back by committee. Now, here's the thing. Here's the plus side. They do have three guys that have all SEC upside to them. This is not a situation where, you know, you don't have a closer in your bullpen, so you're going closer by committee. That's not one of these. All three of these dudes that we're talking about, Price, Curry, and Emery, they can all tote the mail. They would all be bona fide starters, no question feature back candidates for 95% of the teams out there. Last year you had Clyde Edwards Solaire, and you didn't really worry about any of these other names all that much. In the bowl game, I think Curry got the start in the Peach Bowl. I think that's who it was. And he's a guy who has a unique running style. Tyron Davis Price is very violent. John Emery's the guy that a lot of people, myself included, thought would burst on the scene last year. I remember talking to a personnel guy who said, man, it may not be in week one, but like when Emory gets on the field, he's going to make you forget about everyone else. There were people around LSU and who observed LSU who actually thought John Emery was going to overtake Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Now think about how crazy that sounds once you saw how the season played out. Well, he struggled all he struggled mightily in pass pro, was not the best with his hands out of the backfield. and so who has that complete package here? Again, as I told you, this is not a situation where they're looking around and saying, "Ooh, no one has the capability to do everything we need. No, they think they have the capability. I'm just telling you, if you're of the belief that LSU is going to be fine this year because they still have the same system in place and we think Miles Brennan going to be a good enough quarterback and we have faith that, you know, dare Rosenthal can hold down left tackle and we feel good enough about all these other pieces, you better feel good enough about having a feature back because if you're second 12 and you're having to sub in and out, all of a sudden those defensive coordinators breathe a sigh of relief. And they get set and they sub and all of a sudden a lot of those scramble plays, those improv plays, those easy first downs you found last year, they're gone partly because you take a step down in the caliber of quarterback you have, but also your offensive effectiveness takes a step back because you don't have the element of tempo like you did last year. So no, I don't think running back by committee is something Ed Orgeron is interested in at all this year. The follow-up question and I think it's going to take a little while for us to figure this out, maybe even into and including the regular season, is who is it going to be? I believe someone will step up. I don't even have a betting favorite right now. I mean, Curry is who I'd probably go with. I don't feel confident in that. I think Emery's the most talented out of those three. Is this table made of wood? I don't know. Regardless, we'll see, and time will tell there. Thank you for the question, though, Jeff had another question uh, and this will be the last one we get to tonight I'm going to tell you something about the podcast before we're through a question about Georgia and this was from Teddy and this was on Twitter too what is the bigger concern for Georgia's offense this year is it quarterback or wide receiver neither one of these are at the top of my concern list for Georgia offensively this year it's offensive line for me how quickly the tables turn by the way What were we saying last year at this time about Georgia's offensive line? Every preview magazine you cracked open after you inhaled the new magazine smell, you turned to, you know, the top units and you looked at offensive line and it was Georgia by 10 miles, right? Well, now all of a sudden this year, some guys get drafted, some guys transfer, and we're looking at Georgia's offensive line. They're looking at it in Athens, just like we are saying, I mean, we're not, we're not terrible now. It's not like the well is dry, but we have question marks at least here now. Offensive line for a very specific reason, and also because it's offensive line, Matt Luke, I might as well put him on that list we're doing, that series of most important and most vital pieces, player or coach, in college football this year. It's Matt Luke. Matt Luke, for those unfamiliar, the former head coach at Ole Miss, is now the offensive line coach at Georgia. Here's the situation for them right now. Interior, probably not in terrible shape. Jamari Salyer is a guy who came on campus. He used to weigh uh, almost a metric ton. He was a monster coming out of high school and was an interior guy all the way. And they feel like he's shaved himself down. He's lost a lot of weight. He's worked his tail off. They feel like, I know a lot of preview magazines don't feel this way. They feel like left tackle, we think that he can slide out there and we think that we can win in the SEC with him at at, uh, left tackle, my bad. But the right tackle spot, anybody's guess. And that is even without factoring in the possibility for injury here. So Matt Luke has got it to do. That's a guy that's very handsomely paid. He's very highly thought of, excellent recruiter, Uh, probably about the best option you could ever hope to find to fill in for the departing Sam Pittman, who is now the head coach at Arkansas, but they got it to do there. And the reason I bring this up is because everyone wants to talk about Todd Munkin coming in. I understand, new offensive coordinator. Everyone wants to talk about Jamie Newman and how Zamir White gonna take over and the other backs in the backfield it's all irrelevant if you don't have offensive line figured out. Wide receiver, we just got asked about that here. Uh, George Pickens is a phenomenal talent. Burst on the scene at a time they needed him the most last year. They've got guys that are ready to emerge, in some cases in their second year on campus. It's all irrelevant. If you don't get offensive line figured out, it's all irrelevant. So we've seen what it takes. And now that I think about it, you know, this time last year, when preview magazine season hit, I remember doing some radio down in Louisiana. They weren't scared about quarterback. Like internally, LSU folks thought Joe Burrow was going to be great. They didn't know he was going to win the Heisman, but they thought he was going to be good. LSU folks were not scared about their wide receiver situation. They knew they had a ton of talent. They had a ton of depth. The only reason it wasn't proven was because they hadn't run an offense that was capable of proving it. They weren't worried about that. You know what they were worried about at LSU last year? Offensive line. You had Sadiq Charles, I believe, at left tackle, Austin Decalus at right tackle. And I remember hearing guys say, uh, you know, in an ideal world, Charles is probably a right tackle, and Decalus is not a starting tackle in the SEC, and maybe on the interior will be okay. They won the Joe Moore Award. That's why LSU won a national championship last year. Their offensive line, which was the question mark unit among many for that offense last year, goes on to win the Joe Moore Award. That was the biggest hidden storyline for the storyline crowd out there in college football last year that because it involved an offensive line unit, didn't get a lot of run nationally. You saw what Joe Burrow did. You saw what Clyde Edwards-Alaire did. You saw two dozen receivers half thousand yard seasons for him last year, it seems. It all started with that offensive line. So if we fast forward from now until week three, when Georgia plays Alabama, week middle of the season, whenever they play Auburn and Florida, and if they are to go to the SEC championship game, That's what we'll be looking back at. Whereas nationally, folks will be talking about how Jamie Newman panned out for Georgia and George Pickens and Don Blaylock and whoever else emerged for them at receiver. Insiders at Georgia, and myself on this show included, will inevitably be looking back and saying, good for you, Jamari Salyer, and good for you, whoever emerges at right tackle, and most notably, good for you, Matt Luke. Man, came in and absolutely saved the day for them. That's my biggest question for Georgia. Uh, The other question that some of you had as we wrap up here is, huh, that podcast kind of ended abruptly this week, didn't it? Speaking, of course, of the Late Kick Extra podcast, which comes out every Wednesday, yes, it did. Only because, as I told you at the beginning of the show, I went too long. I really did. It's not that we're anti-long-form content around here. It's just that we've got a limited number of people in the podcast department capable of editing, a very limited number, and so they have a lot on their plate. I can't just be sending them... um, 90 minute podcast. So, what Utani so graciously did is just whoosh, cut it in half. And we're going to drop the other half, I believe, Saturday, Friday or Saturday. So, be on the lookout for that. In the future, I just got to talk faster because I'm not going to shave the questions off. Which questions am I talking about? That brings me to my last point. The way that you can get in touch with me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. I encourage you to follow me on Twitter at latekickjosh. You can also hit the DMs on Twitter. But most importantly, on the YouTube comment section right below every Late Kick Live episode we do, there is a pinned comment there. Reply to that with any questions or most preferably, I think we can only do this in Apple right now. Give us a five-star review. We're piling those up. I'd, little, I'd just love to get to a thousand personally, but we're piling those up. They really help us. And there is the written review section. Say something moderately nice about me, but submit a question that's where I see them. That's the first place that I look and we get to every one of those. So we appreciate the traction you've given us. It is, I know right now, June. And after that, I'm told comes July. And then, you know, we had news today that that six week buildup for camp looks like it's going to be approved. So, I mean, I just caution everyone, don't breathe too deeply. Don't exhale too deeply. Let's just mind our P's and Q's and hopefully things stay on schedule. Our schedule will bring us back here, same time, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, Sunday night. Until then, I'm Josh Pate. For Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani, this has been The Late Kick. Guys, have a great weekend.
1: Okay, picture this.